Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello and welcome to This Is Your Laugh, the podcast that interviews well-known female stand-ups and comedy actors about what comedy has taught them about life. This podcast is brought to you by ITV Comedy 5050 and we're your hosts, Roxy and Alice. After Breakthrough Brit, Susan Wacoma has already established a diverse and award-winning body of work in her relatively short career. A member of the National Youth Theatre as a teenager, she defied her parents' hopes of becoming a doctor and instead gained a place at RADA, where since graduating she's continued to establish herself as one to watch with eclectic roles across stage, film and television. Her screen credits are far too long to list, but you'll certainly have come across her talent, perhaps as the eccentric Cynthia in BAFTA award-winning Chewing Gum, or as the lonely outsider Raquel in the E4 Netflix show Crazy Head. Susan is currently starring in Channel 4's brand new comedy series Year of the Rabbit, opposite Freddie Fox and Matt Berry, and can concurrently be seen playing the role of Sabrina in the new BBC series Dark Money. If appearing simultaneously on our screens wasn't enough, she's currently delighting audiences on stage in the Regent's Park open-air theatre production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, portraying the iconic role of Bottom. Aside from her innumerable acting accomplishments, she's also established herself as a notable talent in screenwriting, with her own screenplay already under her belt for BBC Films, commissions at Tiger Aspect and Objective Media, and a co-writing credit on an episode of Ramesh Ranganathan's sky comedy The Reluctant Landlord. And if you haven't seen her in all of that, podcast fanatics may have heard her co-hosting the phenomenally successful podcast, The Guilty Feminist. Susan Wakoma, welcome to the show. Yeah. Hey, she's in the house. God, I want to know Woo. her. She sounds great. Oh, oh my goodness. She, <laughs> she, she want to know her. <laughs> she sounds like she doesn't sleep. Um, <laughs> Do, Do you, you sleep? <laughs> no, not at all. Let's go back to the very beginning then. Cool. The dawn of time. <laughs> the dawn of time. <laughs> You're pretty not that much. old. <laughs> pretty much. No, no, no. I feel that old. Like a dinosaur. Yeah, go so for there it. was a big bang. And um, <laughs> so, um, as we mentioned in the bio, your parents hoped you might become a doctor. Mm. Was there ever any chance of that actually coming to fruition? Can you imagine yourself with a, a stethoscope? Do you know what? I could, I could, but I. this is where the lines of acting and um, actual, like, medical school got blurred because I used to love watching ER and I didn't know what was going on and I and I I kind of feel like their ambitions for me came from me watching ER so diligently and they were like oh gosh she's really into that this is great but I didn't really understand acting 
and that that was what I was interested in. Like, for instance, we used to watch, and my mum's obsessed with Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, <laughs> we used to watch all his films way too young, like Columbo, no, not Columbo, Commando, that's it. Um, <laughs> Commando, Last Action, Action Hero, like, all these films that we shouldn't be watching as children. And I used to think that the actors, like, whenever they'd get shot and die, I used to think that the actors would sign a contract saying that they would die. <laughs> so when I'd see actors reappearing in films, I was genuinely scared, because I was like, but they're back from the dead. <laughs> or like when he gets shot and then I see him in something else, I was like, but he's well, he doesn't have the limp. It was very, very confusing. So basically I catfished my parents because I was like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. And they were like, great. But what I meant is I wanted to be Alex Kingston in ER. A, a doctor on TV. Yeah, exactly. But this is amazing. So you still wanted to act even though you thought that you would have to die as a result yeah, of it. Yeah, that's well, how I mean, that, that is serious. I mean, I'm not messing around. Did you ever watch The Crystal Maze? The Crystal Maze, is that what it's called? <laughs> you know, where they get locked in the room? Because I was like, they're gone. They're a goner. Crystal Forever. Maze. So you know where the guy, he leads them around. Oh, yeah, 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 I used to love that. Yeah, yeah. No, I sort of understood. I understood that because that was like a game show. But oh, genuinely, okay. with movies, I would, I didn't know where the lines were. Wow. So it took me ages. I mean, I was very young by this point. I wasn't like... 16 I was yeah. a child like little 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 um so I didn't really get it so I think that's when my parents got the doctor thing and then I slowly when I slow, sort of realized what acting was and that that was what I wanted to do it kind of it did feel like I was breaking it to my it did feel like coming out to my parents yeah going, do you know all that stuff that I was saying about yeah I, I couldn't I couldn't give a monkeys about any of that what was it was it the the sort of the drama of because er is very emotionally yeah, yeah. sort of fraught isn't it very high, fast paced and all yeah. of that and there's george clooney and i was like <sighs> and yeah i think that's what it was and so when i sort of said to my parents actually i don't want to do that they genuinely were a bit confused and <laughs> betrayed really? <laughs> yeah. yeah it was kind of weird so what age did that happen at then well in terms of me actually vocalizing that i wanted to be an actor i didn't I hinted at it when I was choosing drama GCSE and my dad was like, what are you doing? I was like, I just, you know, I'm just a little bit interested. Just, you know, whatever. Just going to dabble, That's yeah. It's fine, whatever. It wasn't until I got into RADA. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that I was like, yeah, I'm serious about this now. Is yeah. it because you needed the validation of a school that is that prestigious to say, yes, she's actually really great and we want her? Yeah, I think it was a mix of things. I, because me falling in love with acting and then realising that I could do it myself, mm. were, there was a bit of a gap. So I would, like you said, I was with National Youth Theatre and I loved it and it felt like summer school and I just met all these people who are now actors but didn't know it at the time that that was what I wanted to do. And then it wasn't until... I was, you know, what we all have to do when we're picking our GCSEs and facing our future and doing A-levels. I went, actually, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? And then that's when I found out that drama school existed. That's also when I found out that, you know, I would be in as much debt going to drama school if I went to, you know, Cambridge because mm. of student loans and whatever. So I thought, well, if I'm going to be in debt, it might as well be for the thing that I want to do as opposed to studying English and coming out the other side of it going, yeah. do you know yeah. what I mean? So that was what the decision was, basically going, oh, if I'm, if there is a school to go, because I'm a bit studious, I'm a bit studious. I was like, if there is a school <coughs> to go learn the actings, then I should go to the acting school. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was how, so it was, it was at that point. And I, and I thought, I'm not going to worry my parents with the auditioning and, you know, do you get in recalls and whatever. We'll just see what happens. And then I got into RADA and I was like, should probably tell them Yeah. Now. Oh, wow. And okay. my mum, I remember telling my mum very secretly, going, mum, I've just applied for this place. She, I mean, she doesn't know what RADA is. But the first thing she said was, don't tell your dad. 
Oh, really? So I was like, cool, not going to tell gonna him. It's going to be a hard one to keep a secret, isn't it? Well. Oh, God. <laughs> I then was doing, because they had a hard time, like, me doing National Youth Theatre. They were a bit like, well, you know, you should be doing something else to do with medicine or whatever and not going off and doing this stuff. And I was like, it's just a hobby. It's just a hobby. Lies. Yeah. And uh, and I was doing a show in Salford at the at the Lowry. And I, this was the summer before I started RADA and I got a letter. You get these letters going, welcome to RADA. You have to get a leotard. Like, you must buy these books. Oh, yeah, the long skirts. Yeah, yeah. long skirts. Yes, yeah, jazz rehearsal shoes. skirts, jazz shoes. For £500. For £500 <laughs> of your money. I'm like, wow, maybe I should have just gone to Oxford because this is expensive. Anyway, so I got one of those letters. And my dad had a really annoying habit of opening my post. <gasps> so he opened my post and I got a phone call from him and he was like, so you're going to this place called RADA? And I was like, ooh, yes. And he was like, we'll discuss it when you get home. And I thought, oh, so I got home and he very quietly, very calmly was like, all right, so you're going, you're definitely going to this place. I was like, yeah, I am. I want to. It's what I want to do. And he was like, cool, you have to leave. So he kicked me out. No, kicked really? me out. I know the sad bit now. Um, yeah, he kicked oh, me out. Is. And so, I mean, it was I was completely fine. I had a teacher who lived in um, Highgate, my friend Maria Leaf. Shout out to Maria. <gasps> who was, Shout out Maria. She is the one that really encouraged me um, and sort of went over what is drama school and what is this and what is that and everything. And then she was like, I've got a spare room. And I knew her son and, you know, I was, sort of took me into her family. But the thing, I mean, it seems very extreme and it is actually looking back very extreme and I know that my dad um, before he passed away felt bad about it but it was to do with his fear he didn't know anything about this world yeah. he couldn't protect me um, and also you know my parents were immigrants and they come to this country hoping for a better future then I turn around going I want to be a penniless actor <laughs> it must be utterly infuriating it's like you could be anything you could be an estate agent and you're choosing to do this I'm... so he just got he just got angry and felt a little bit betrayed. But it took him a, it took him a little while before he came round. And he did come round. Did he as he saw your growing success? Because I mean, you are far from a penniless actor, but obviously far that from, must have been I far am from. So flush. <laughs> she's so rolling in it now. Rich. Oh my god. <laughs> but as he saw your success, did, did did you start to reconcile? A little bit. He sadly passed away about two years after I left drama school. But he, I mean, all they wanted to see was that I was going to be all right. And I'm very self-sufficient. And that's thanks to him. He didn't realise that he <laughs> spawned somebody equally as stubborn. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, definitely by, towards the end, he knew that I was going to be okay and would sort of be like, oh, I saw you on Holby. And why didn't you tell me that you were going to be on Holby? Because like, the doctor ones again. <laughs> yeah. Like Porters, yeah, he would have loved it. that. He <laughs> would have loved Porters. He's like, oh, you're a Porter starting, starting as a Porter. Aspirations to be a doctor. I love this character. Yeah, so he just wanted to make sure that I was all right. And by the end, he knew that I'd be yeah, would be fine. Yeah, that's so. Wow. I think that's so incredibly brave that you still went ahead and carved your own path despite all oh, of those yeah. things. Oh yeah, because I don't know. I I don't know what pigheadedness. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I just kind of because there wasn't anyone really that looked like me on TV, so it wasn't that. I, I just I came across some really amazing people like Maria, um, who told me that I was good and I believed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like would encourage me and, you know, encourage my voice and say that I had something to say. Also, I loved comedy. That was always this thing that I would go to. That was my go-to to go and watch. So I wanted to be a part of that world more than feeling 
discouraged from it. I actually don't know. I think it's to do with the mentors I, I met along the way. So do you think really? that is what motivated you then, was the people saying, you know, giving you the approval of saying, we think you're good, we think you should go for this? Yes, 100%. But then that leaves you at a really funny crossroads when you're at drama school and your mentors are not there and it's just you. You have to then become your own cheerleader. And that's where it was really hard because then you get the voice all going, why did you think you could do this? Yeah. Why are you at RADA? Why don't you just go to juggling school? <laughs> like, why on earth are you here battling with Chekhov? So, yeah, that was the next bit that I had to kind of overcome. Do you still find yourself having to be your own cheerleader? Or have you reached a point now where you feel, you know, confident on a daily basis? Yeah, you do have to be your own cheerleader. And also because I've never seen my career or anyone's career as levels, as like going up a level, anything like that. Will, but... Your career does change, particularly for women. I feel like what they don't tell you is that your casting bracket, so the the bracket of, you know, characters that you can play, um, changes so quickly at a faster rate than you. So the characters that you play when you're 21 is completely different to the characters that you play at 24. Whereas with men, you do not get that. You are playing the love interest until you die. Um, But it changes so far. And I saw it with a lot of my friends who sort of left drama school and started playing ingenues and then literally by 24, you're too old. You're a nine-year-old child. Where's your baby? (laughs) Where's your baby? Put a baby in a hand now. (laughs) So you're constantly battling like what the world sees you as, as in like the wider world, what industry, television, film sees you as, how you see yourself Mm. in the world. There's a dear friend of mine called Susan Brown, who's a fantastic actress, um, who's quite a bit older than me. And, you know, she's so fun, she's so sexy. And we had a really interesting chat where she was just like, I'm constantly being cast as like grandmothers who don't feel anything. And that's just not me and then she ended up taking a part in angels in america at the national which went to broadway and then she got nominated for a tony and it's just like you know when people sort of give you the opportunity to do more you can but you get limited so quickly as a woman and so you have to really be on top of how you see yourself yes and what you feel like you can play because you're constantly being told by the world whether it's society and nothing to do with acting and then the industry what you should be so cultivating your voice of like your inner cheerleader is really really important but it's more than just cheering yourself on it's like really getting to grips with you know am I changing or is the world just telling me that I'm meant to change now or yeah it's kind of it's hard because you have your own personal growth and progression outside of your career and Mm -hmm. then you have the one within your career yeah and trying to figure out where you should be on your own track as your own person must be quite the lines must blur sometimes that perception of yourself yeah and there are certain things that happen that reinforce your personal life in terms of work and whatever if this is up for debate um, audience but like I never really had any sort of husk to my voice and then actually when my dad passed away my voice I lost my voice for like a month oh, really? it completely went didn't really know what it was about um, panicked a bit and then I did um, a play and I was working with this amazing voice tutor called Barbara Hausman and she was just sat me down and went tell me about your voice just tell me about your voice and I was like well my voice sort of it went for about a month and it came back and since it's come back it's always it's got this little bit of a husk to it and you know I've been I saw this specialist and da, da, da. she went okay interesting has anything happened in your life recently I was like yeah my dad passed away she went it will be that your voice is broken Oh, and this wow. is your voice. And it was something, you know, we do so much work on the voice at drama school. They don't tell you that life stuff will 
affect your voice. Yeah. My voice broke. And this is now my voice. And now I do so much voiceover. So it's <laughs> oh, my goodness. So <laughs> how different is your voice now well, to it, how, what was before? Well, it's quite, I was quite high. Really? Quite high oh, really? Voice. Oh, I'm quite, And I yeah. didn't have that kind of husky. <laughs> I think it's husky. To, to it at all. And I could sing higher as well. I can still sort of sing high. But all this stuff that I just thought oh gosh, like, you know, I'm not doing all the right things to preserve my voice. And she just went, your voice is, this is your new voice. Wow. Make it's friends so with it. It's so fascinating. It's so fascinating, yeah. I, I love the psychology of things. I get a little bit woo-woo and enjoy yeah, no, all this. Yeah, I do as like, well. I love it. Yeah, I love it because, you know, you talk about a broken heart and you talk about yeah. changing and developing your personality over the years. But yeah. the idea of your voice actually breaking mm-hmm. as being part of that, I don't know if you'd call it personal growth or what. Or... Yeah, it's expansion, life, yeah. like, yeah. that effect. Of what, and you sort of go, well, of course it does. And this is stuff that you're not really particularly as women it's like you you know this is your voice and this is what's going to be like it's like no women historically get battered by life yeah. you damn right it's going to affect you in some yeah. way yeah. you just hear it when women get older their voices just drop and drop yeah. and drop um, yeah. I mean it doesn't bode well for me <laughs> no, I'll be literally on a base note a single base note um, <laughs> you'll be very well <laughs> but yeah and so that must be just sort of the, the, the weathering of life <laughs> the weathering of life but also it's just but also I love my new voice I really yeah. I think it's really cool it's a great voice so thank you um, so, yeah, so it's just things like that where, you know, you're changing the way the world sees you, the way the industry sees you is, it is mad. And me, I'm now 31 um, in this really weird, like in Dark Money, I'm playing this mother. I mean, I had no qualms. Like, There's also this big thing amongst um, people in the industry. It's like, when did you start playing mothers? You must put it off for as long as possible. Because once you play one mother, that's it. Just be a mum. <laughs> oh, and so I remember thinking, that is bollocks. So I want to play mum, yeah. like quick. But yeah, I remember the young actor playing Toot. I remember meeting him going, huh, he's called Toot, he plays Tyrone. Yeah. And uh, I remember meeting him going, well, he's taller than me. He looks quite big. How old is he? When did I have him? Yeah. And uh, Lewis, <laughs> is this biologically like, possible? Yeah, Lewis, the director, was like, I'll just add a couple of years on you and then it'll be fine. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, I'm doing the maths and they're like, yeah, yeah, don't, don't, don't worry. It's, it's fine. You've got, you could play a, a range. You could play a range. I was like, okay, all right, age me up then. Um, I think that's amazing. great. I mean, so going back to this idea of you saying that you have to sort of resist the image that the industry mm. makes for you, is that a practical way that you do it then? So you say, yes, I will take the mum role, but then also, um, and we both, we do want to talk about bottom. And yes, this of much, course, yeah. yeah. So is, is that the way you do it? You say, I want to play that, but then at the same time, I'm going to play this. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't, it, it wasn't strategic in, in that sense. With bottom, it's a, you know, Shakespeare gets put on all the time. So if there is a Shakespeare play that's being put on, I go, right, what are we doing that's different? What are we saying that's different? Because if it's the same as it's always Rehash, been done, yeah. I'm really not interested. So for me, the attraction was playing bottom, playing that role. But I remember in rehearsals, sort of, and not even for rehearsals, I met up with Dominic Hill, our director, um, and Vicky uh, Richardson, our casting director, just before, um, once I got the offer. And I remember sitting there going, so what do you want to do with it? Like, what I know that I'm... I'd be playing bottom, but like, what are we saying that's new with it? Yeah. And and Dominic was like, you know, with bottom, she is this really annoying, like, amdram actor who sort of bosses all her fellow actors around. But they love her and they're really, they find her really endearing. But with a lot of productions that you go and see, you normally see bottom being played in a way that sort of dominates everybody. Mm-hmm. And you sort of go, hmm, we wonder why all the mechanicals like <laughs> him um, and so he was it's not about sort of making her softer or anything like that it's just her need for amateur dramatics yeah. and I was like I get I get that yeah she's that guy yeah she's that dude 
in a hall in the country just going, I want to play everything and make the set. Like, that's who she is. So, um, so yeah, so that was what the attraction was. It's complete coincidence that Dark Money has come out at the same time as yeah. me doing Bottom at the same time as Year of the Rabbit, which couldn't yeah. be more different. But that's always what I personally have wanted in my career was to do as much um, in terms of range. And I've had that in theatre, but in TV, comedy has been the thing that's opened up to me. So when Lewis Arnold, the, the director for Dark Money, who I've... He's, he's actually the only drama tv drama director who i think believes i can do drama <laughs> and has done for years like he's got me in for so much stuff there was a project i was meant to do and couldn't do but he's been like the dude who's like him and, and victor jenkins the casting director are like the two of like of course she Backing can do this you, yeah, yeah. Yes. she can do mm. this and so the you were trained at rod i, mean, I you went to rod you can do it yeah anyway so it, it's great that my first drama is with with him, but it's total coincidence that it's all come out at the same time and couldn't be more different. Yeah, so how do you approach a role like that? Because obviously it's so iconic. You've had Matt Lucas play it, David yeah. Williams, uh, Richard Griffiths. Dawn you know. French. Dawn, did Dawn French play it Dawn as well? French. She's French. so amazing. Did you see her bottom or not? No, that oh. might be helpful, do you think? Yeah. yeah. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever seen a Midsummer Night's Dream, and actually quite a few of us in the cast haven't, um, but I think that was really, really good. Um, it's quite impressive to have avoided seeing Mid- Midsummer Night's Dream. I mean, Listen, you've never <laughs> seen it. When I dodge a Shakespeare, I dodge Shakespeare. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Haven't managed to dodge Hamlet. I've seen that one. Really? How many times? Mm. Oh, God. Yeah, no, weird, which has been great for this. But, um, but yeah, like approaching it, I was worried to be, and Dominic, will, our director, will <laughs> attest to this. I was really worried pretty much the entire time. Pretty much right up until press night. I was, and probably still now, I'm a little bit worried. <laughs> because all you've got to do is trust in the whole production and what Dominic wanted to do was sort of push the darker elements to it because there are some horrible bits. There's, you know, there's a bit where Lysander tries to throttle, literally choke Hermia to death on stage and normally everyone glosses over and goes, ha, oh, no, ha, ha, and he didn't want to overlook any of those undertones. So that means getting the comedy, which Bottom definitely is, is that's the function of Bottom and the mechanicals, the other actors in the, in the troupe, that's their function. So it was, yeah, just trying to strike the balance of that and not lose your nerve and really be a part of the company and not worry too much about what am I doing different? Because Titania has sex with Bottom, doesn't she? Well, hey, do you want to know something? Yes, I do. Titania doesn't have sex with Bottom. <gasps> this is some freaky deaky thing that we have written in Shakespeare. No. Doesn't happen. And, you know, so me and Dom, so Titania is played by an amazing actress called Amber James, who's 24. Oh, my oh God. God. Yeah, thank like, you very much. And she is, uh, like, she's got Judy Dench vibes about her. Wow. And how can you be, anyway, it's irritating, but also delicious. She's so fun to play with. Um, and she, um, so we were talking about, you know, obviously, I become a donkey and she falls in love with me and all of that. And, um, and, he, and he said, do you know what? If you read the play... They don't have sex. And we were like, going through all the pages, going, oh my God, that's so true. So what is this? He's like, that's just humans for you. Um, And so what the whole point of Titania falling in love with a donkey is it's a punishment. She doesn't love 
Oberon. Oberon gets jealous and possessive, and so he goes, right, the next thing that you see is the thing that you're going to fall in love with. Then I turn up, and she's like, oh, I love a donkey. And so what we've decided to go for is the unrequited love of that. So she loves this donkey, and the way that I've decided to approach Bottom is that Bottom is like, the fairies are much more interesting. The fairies, the magical forest, all of that is cool. This person going, oh, I love you, I love you, is... Is re- there's a lot there's bigger stuff going on and so we play on that and that's really cool but yeah no sex that is a no manufactured sex. thing and wow. the pain of unrequited love now we now Sounds that's like a comedy real. there we go Obviously, you have done a lot of comedy. You've talked about Dark Money being your first venture into drama. Yes. Yeah. Preferences? Or sort of is it the dramedy that you, you sort of incline to prefer? Ooh. Well, in terms of my writing, it's dramedy. Just because I feel like you can get whatever you want to say across with a lot more power if you try and make someone laugh, but also try and make them cry. Um, it's a lovely combo, isn't it? It's a it? lovely yeah. combo. Oh, Fleabag is just the best <laughs> example of that. I think, yeah. I mean, I love series one, but series two. Knocked out with you. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. And that and that is absolutely my taste. That's I, I love stuff like that. So, um, so um, yeah, so in terms of what I'm writing, it's definitely that. In terms of acting, I... Me going into comedy was it wasn't anything that I set out. It's what I love, like my personal taste, but um it's just the doors that opened up to me and so you go through those doors and um and I found, you know, like one of the first comedies I did was Bluestone Four Two, which is BBC three. And I felt like all the team on that were just so open and encouraging and, you know, one thing leads to another in that respect. But doing Dark Money was it, it just reminded me that I could do drama because yeah. if you don't do it how do you know that you can um and so it was just good to go oh no I can do that and also it was such a great team because of the subject matter we had to make sure that the set was a happy set for Max yeah I was going to ask about to, that yeah, yeah. well I, I was dipping in and out for months but you know Jill and Babu were the guys and Olive Gray were the guys who had to sort of have the big chunk of it but every time I was on set maybe it's just because I omit sunshine I don't know <laughs> but um but no it was it was a really jovial set the boys were allowed to play and mess about a, a bit um and yeah I think that that was definitely manufactured so that these boys could feel safe yeah um so yeah so I was like oh I, I sort of arrived thinking it's gonna be like line of duty isn't it <laughs> you know all those actors line of duty they were like mm, doing serious work mm. it's all serious work serious work and they arrived I was like oh no it's oh okay I don't need to lie in semi-supine just you know before I, mean? I do this just breathing yeah. listening to I'm like sure. a soundtrack of sound, sad I'm songs sure I read, read somewhere that with a drama set maybe it's a particularly harrowing production that everyone was so jovial off camera because they just had to in order to balance it out a bit do you absolutely have to like I can't imagine I mean that was what I stereotypically thought of a drama set in my head and I turned up I was like oh god it's not that at all but yeah for that shoot like they had to have that there because it was yeah it's really really harrowing and sort of looking into the eye of every person parent's nightmare really so um so yeah in terms of the experiences they weren't (laughs) that different no actually. no no it's really interesting <laughs> yeah. obviously on the guilty feminist podcast yeah. you co-present and you talk about different very pertinent but you know 
quite hilarious aspects of feminism. Yeah. And that's kind of, in a way, it's a stand-up comedy style to it. Yeah. So had you done much stand-up or any stand-up before doing that? No. None. Zero. So the way me and Deborah met, we were at a party. It was Phoebe Waller-Bridge was having a party. Oh, my God. I'd kill to be at that party. (laughs) Well, this is what I did. I turned up. This is a couple of years ago. I turned up so sad. Heartbreak. Some stupid boy. Uh. Some stupid. And actually, no, he's, he's actually really nice. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're friends now. But for the sake of the drama. But of the stupid, story. Boy, yeah. stupid boy. Stupid boy. <laughs> and um, I turned out really sad, and everyone's having a really great time. And honestly, I was that guy at a party. I was moping. I was like, oh, God, why am I here? And it was on the 30th of December, my birthday's on New Year's Eve. So it turned midnight, and I was like, quietly, oh, no. I was miserable. And then um, Vicky Jones, who uh, runs Dry Right with Phoebe came over, saw that I was miserable, and was like, right, I'm going to introduce you to this woman. Introduce me to Deborah. And she's like, this is Susan. Susan's normally funny. Um, <laughs> Susan's <laughs> normally funny. What? What? An opener. And I was brilliant. like, hi. Yeah, and Deborah immediately was like, awesome, brilliant. I'm going to follow you on Facebook, and then we'll be friends. And I was like, cool. And so the next day, she really did. And then uh, about a week later, she was like, we're doing a series of shows. Would you like to be a guest? I was like, sure. I can be a guest. I'm less sad now. This is good. So I was a guest. <laughs> Really enjoyed it. And then she was like, floated, floated. Would you perhaps would like to co-host? I don't know. Go. And I was like, mm, yeah, kind of. Did notice that you do five minutes of stand-up when you co-host. And yeah. I've never done She was like, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Just do it. Just, yeah, just do it for five minutes. What's five minutes? Anyway, so I was, eventually I went, sure. And then she booked me for like three different episodes in one week. So I had to come up with 15 minutes of oh stand-up. So I was like absolutely <laughs> freaking out before my first show and you can hear it actually because I go I go up to the mic and I'm like apparently I meant to do stand up but I'm not going to do stand up I'm just going to tell you a funny story and then I do it and I turn to Deborah and was like how was that and she goes that was stand up <laughs> how irritating that <laughs> <laughs> you just go ahead and do it so I've never done stand up outside of the guilty feminist I don't think I ever would because mm. it's such a safe space I mean you you know You've got to be funny. I mean, that crowd will tell you if you're not funny. But, like, it's such a safe space and you can talk about anything. And kind of like the flea bag analogy of, you know, saying something poignant and also making people laugh, that's a space to really do that. So, yeah, that was my first foray and only foray into stand-up. So, I mean, we're <laughs> very brave still. <laughs> What's your process for writing uh, in terms of perhaps that which you did for The Guilty Feminist, but then also some of the screenplays that you've done yeah. and, you know, in your short film as well, Love yeah. the Sinner. Yeah, which I watched. Oh, did great. you? Yeah, no, oh, I'm so it. proud of that. Yeah. Um, so, my process is kind of, because I act, it's, I, I learned in my head, I was like, right, what happens when I write is I go to um, a country estate and um, I'm eating cr- crumpets and I'm there with my Mac and I'm just <laughs> creating the next big thing, basically. Um, but I don't have the time. So <laughs> what I've learned is that when I have a window to write, I write. The time that I like to write is sort of midnight till about six, seven in the oh, morning. So okay. in bed? Yeah. Oh. Because that's I'm less likely to have distractions. There's something about nighttime. I'm so nocturnal. I mean, this is why I'm you don't not. sleep. <laughs> you literally just carved out the exact sleeping hours yeah, and be yeah, like, I'm literally. Right. That's when my friends are like, oh, that's when you're awake. That's when you're probably, okay, cool. I'll text you then. Um, yeah, so that's when I like to, ideally like to write. But for instance, doing the play at the moment, if I did that, that's just not healthy. Yeah. yeah. So it is just about finding the opportunity. I'm not um, strict about it. If I just feel like, oh, I've got an hour, I can do something. 
I'll do it. For instance, you know, you mentioned that I co-wrote um, episode of um, The Reluctant Landlord. I was doing that on my phone <gasps> on the set of Rabbit. You're kidding. Yeah, that's oh how. So I had to download Final Draft app and I would do, I'd get notes from Sky and then I'd just have to do them on my phone. How and then frustrating with that tiny keyboard. Yeah, my thumb. Really <laughs> and it's very dexterous. Oh my god, so I was going to say, do you get shaky thumb? But if you're cold as well, then oh. you get seriously shaky thumb. I mean, there was there was typos that you wouldn't imagine. Like Sean Pye would be like, "What was that word?" I was like, mm, "Figure it out, Sean." And um, he was great to work with. But that was the only time I could do it because. Otherwise, we're doing loads of split days, which means that you start a bit later, but you finish filming later. So it's like, I, in my head, I could go, oh, when we wrap, I'll start right. I won't. I'll fall asleep. I'll fall asleep. So I knew I had to do it on set. Do you like being that busy? Or is it slightly that sense of, I can't say no to the work because you never know when the next piece of work is going to come along? Mm. Yeah, I definitely still have that mentality. I think that anyone who doesn't is... Nicole Kidman? Oh, I apparently don't Judy Dench still has. I'm sure I've read an interview where she says, well, you know, you what? don't want to turn down work. And really? it's like, I think you could, Judy. I think Judy, <laughs> Judy you're fine, mate. You, yeah. did a, you did an eight-minute appearance that got you an Oscar. I think you're yeah. fine, <laughs> But no, but no, I, I joke. Of course, there is. And also, I still have that element in my head where, yes, things are going really well and things are opening up to me, particularly with the writing. That was not on the, the cards. And when these opportunities come along, I don't take every opportunity. I do exercise um, my right to say no a lot. You know, if I'm going to be an actress and be a writer, I have to do it at the same time. Yeah. Like, I just have to do it at the same time. Or, because, you know what, we said we laughed that I'm flush. I'm not flush at all. So <laughs> if I'm going to take, like, for instance, I did the... I did the writer's room for the second series of Sex Education. Yeah. And that was a conscious take a month out of acting. Right, and okay. So starting to actually put the writing before the acting in yeah, that sense. And, just go, and that was the first time I ever said, let's hold everything else and let me do that. And so slowly I've, I'm learning to do that, especially with my film, That you know, that's my project. Um, but I do both. And sometimes it's great and I love doing both. Sometimes it's a pain in the arse. Yeah. In terms of your writing then yeah. and the way you approach it, do you have a set of golden rules that you try and implement? So I, everything that I write is personal. You know, I have flirted with writing things that are less personal. I did write on um, Reluctant Landlord, which wasn't my show. But in terms of the things that I enjoy writing, because it's a joy. Acting is a thing that is an absolute joy, but can really, really irritate and depress when you don't get that job, mm, yeah. or when the job falls through, or you know you take the job and then you're like, this isn't the job that I thought it was going to be. So that's work. Like for me, acting is it's a joy, but it is work. And writing was all I was never going to do writing if it was going to depress me in the way that acting can. So I'm very cautious about what I sign up for. And it has to be something that touches me emotionally. It just has to. But other people can, you know, write for hire and that's amazing. But I just know that it has to say something to me personally. So it's for, first and foremost, it has to be personal. What about in the way you actually execute the writing when you come to your process? Um... Mm. Is there something that you think I have to have? For example, it has to be. They have to be. The majority of the characters have to be female. Oh for example. gosh, yeah. I'm not interested in writing male leads. Sorry. Um, <laughs> You're no, not actually, alone. I mean, that's a, that's a bit of a lie. My film does have men in it. The setup for my film Three Weeks is about this woman who splits up with uh, her 
recent situation ship and realises she's pregnant and then chooses to have a termination whilst also starting a new relationship with this um, yep, much younger guy. And so, yes, it's the setup is a love triangle, as it were, but it's not <laughs> at all. It's not about that. Of course it isn't. We're talking about termination. It's about other things. So, yes, I do have men in my thing. But, no, the, the protagonists are women and there will be non-white women in the leads as well. They don't have to look like me necessarily at all but making it as diverse as possible to prove you can tell a story you can touch people without thinking you know what are we used to seeing on screen like I'm just not I'm just not interested in in that I had a really funny conversation with uh, Daisy who was in my short film Daisy May Cooper when she was first developing this country and um, (laughs) now the production company at the time didn't want her to play her because (sighs) She wasn't attractive enough. No. You just think, what? I, I can, but the thing is, I can so imagine that happening. Going, oh, yeah. we yeah. love the script. Suze, we love the, we love the story. Can we have someone else playing <laughs> the lead role? I can totally see that happening. I mean, but that show would just not be that show without the minute. That's what's just. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're right. You can imagine that conversation happening. Totally. And so one of the things that I'm absolutely adamant is actually I was speaking to I just feel like I'm name dropping I'm absolutely not I oh you do it I love a name drop <laughs> <laughs> so I was speaking ages ago to Charlie Cavell who wrote um, End of the Fucking World um, just a fantastic human being and we were talking about her experience writing with Russell T Davis on um, I think she wrote on Cucumber Banana I keep getting yeah. confused um, I think she wrote an episode of Banana and she was in it and uh, they were talking about uh, whether you write the description the physical descriptions of, of characters because I hate it I hate it when it's like oh curvy or oh thin or or like to you might as well just say Sarah played by Kate Winslet yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Just, just tell yeah. us list yeah. the actor you have just in mind tell yeah. us who you want um, so she was saying that Russell T uh, uh, please forgive me if this is Russell T Davis please forgive me if this is wrong but she said that he puts down the ethnicity of each character because and she's you know she asked why you know why is that important and he said well if you don't you will get you know a list of um, actors to see for, for that role who are white yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's right. I, I heard that on um, the oh, US podcast Script Notes, and they said the exact same thing. But the, but then but then it should also go by the same rule, should it? That you'd be saying you'd also be listing white. I mean, I just don't know when somebody's white because otherwise, is it weird just to do it for characters of? I know. I'd, I'd I mean, say I mean, everyone. Just, yeah, exactly. Everybody. Absolutely everyone, because and it's and it will bear nothing on the it will bear nothing yeah. on the script or the story at all. But if you don't do that, you really will get a list yeah. you know, of actors they, that are white for whatever reason and potentially male as well and they just said it just helps the casting director out it's like if you just if it is let's say uh you know doctor just write female and black and then it's like great okay well then we're seeing these actors for it yeah and you have to be that we want to live in a utopia where you don't have to do that but i just feel like i think we have to go a bit further before we can potentially go back to not having to do that i think that's sort of the the, the (laughs) climate we're in at the moment yeah exactly and that's sort of in terms of the characters i write there are some certain characters where that is important um and not just in regards to race it'll be in terms of gender or um physical ability or, or um or anything like that like I feel like you have to write it. But I, I will literally look at the end of the script and be like, cool, that person is this, that person's that. And my rule is also make more than one. Like, don't just... Yes. Like, you can employ two disabled actors and then that's the end of it. Like, rather than one actor having to, you know, be the beacon of every person with cerebral palsy. Like, do you know what I mean? Exactly. I feel like two 
one of the things I was talking to another actor actually in the show who we're talking because he was talking about how he meets a lot of his friends he meets a lot of his friends on jobs all the time and I was like god I don't meet a lot of my black girlfriends on jobs because it's either one of us that's such an interesting point wow. never yeah. whereas very, everyone else is very, coming across yeah very very rarely will I actually work with other black women on jobs ever because only one of us and if there's more than one of us it's because we're related I'm like <sighs> we can not be related yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. so yes yeah, so I've just sort of gone on a tangent there but yeah that's one of the things that I um, absolutely prioritise is making sure that it's obviously it depends where it's when it's set you know what you're saying with you know race and identity and gender and all of that but for me it's you've got to prove how easy it is yeah and yeah so that's what I do in totally. my t- tiny corner of writing so if you could m- wave a magic wand over this industry including the acting and writing aspects mm. of it what is it you would ideally change I would make things more diverse right at the top. So I'm talking about people who greenlight projects and talking about people who run channels and networks and that's where it has to that's where it has to change. It has to be there because actually there's loads of acting talent. There's loads of writing talent. That is not the issue. So when people get sort of a bit you know funny about quotas it's like no the the talent is there. That's not the problem. And I don't think that it's this large conspiracy of racism. Like if we're just talking about it, I know that diversity encompasses so much more than that. Um, but if we t- just look at racism, I don't. I think it is this, like, let's all be racist. I think that it's just about what are we used to seeing on television? Yeah. Who are our star actors? Who are the people who draw um, viewers, viewerships? Their names, and a lot of the names are white. Like, I will flock to see Olivia Colman paint a wall. I will absolutely. I will watch that on repeat yeah. <laughs> again and again and again. No question. It's just understanding that we have our stars, and it's about actually taking a risk. I say in inverted commas, and probably giving an opportunity to an actor who isn't necessarily a household name and not quaking, and you know, being sure that the story will carry it and hopefully make them a household name, and you know, blah blah. blah. I think you're doing a great job in pioneering that sort of thing yourself. Yeah. Thanks, guys. (laughs) So do you see your career then in terms of if you look forward to the next 10 years, do you see it staying sort of the same way it is at the moment with the ratio of acting to writing you're doing or can you see yourself heading further in one direction than the other? Ideally, I would love to have the time and resources to just focus on writing, just for like a year or a couple of years and get things made, basically. Um... I think that is going to be happening for the first time next year when hopefully my film goes into production. Are so you yeah. in that as well? Yeah, I'll be yeah. in it as well. Yeah. Ooh, she's writing herself all the parts. Oh, oh come on, you Diversity, gather. diversity. And I'm like, me, 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 talk about me, talk about me. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I just want to make it a better place for everybody. I'm like, me, 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 write myself all the parts. Be, 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 be. But ideally, in the next 10 years, I would love to just write something and hand it over to people and go, right, go make it. Or directing as well. I'd love to get into, definitely... And, yeah, sort of taking a break from acting, as it were, for a few years to concentrate on making stuff and then having a a welcome return. (laughs) A warm, hugging embrace. So finally then, Susan, if Mm. there is one thing or something that your career in comedy and drama has Mm. taught you about life, what would it be? 
oh my gosh that's a really good question the world is is kind of scary but now we like we know how scary it is mm. well it's, we're very attuned to how bloody scary it is and i feel like you know on a global scale on a personal um, scale as well it's really easy to feel completely battered by life the world whatever and one of the things that i've realized about my job is that there is no point going through the auditions going through the, all the drafts going through the notes from the channels and all of that stuff not sleeping and all of that if you're not finding joy in what you're doing mm. and like there is an absolutely there's absolutely no point freezing my bollocks off in Luton in a corset <laughs> if I don't love it like it seems mad to do that and so I've really, particularly in the last few months actually, I've really come full circle in understanding that you have to find the joy in what you do. And that is when I create my best work and when I work with people that I absolutely adore is when I'm going, where is the joy in it? So I would say that has definitely impacted my life where I'm now looking at the people in my life, the people that I love, that I give my time to, like who brings joy, who do I give joy. There's this this actor who won a Tony this year um, for a musical who said, he, he, you know, quite a bit older, I've forgotten his name, please forgive me. He said, he was going over his like rules for life or something, and he's like, surround yourself with people who are, when you walk into a room, they're happy to see you. Yeah. And when he said that, I really hit a nerve. Um, I'm only interested in people who are happy to see me. Well, we're delighted to see you and to have you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much thank for you coming ever on the so podcast. Much. You've been absolutely brilliant. Thank <laughs> Cheers, you. Guys. Thank you. <laughs>